There's not a bachelor in my room. There's not a bachelor in your room? That's such no. a bummer. Hello, and welcome to our distinguished podcast. <laughs> I am Megan, and I am an English teacher in the land of Japan. And my lovely co-host here. I am Rebecca, and I am a data analyst in Northern California. And when you put us together, we are TMI. That's my interest. <laughs> a podcast where we do <laughs> finger guns and tell you about yes. random topics. So yes. that's what we are. That is what we are, and I love it. I embrace it. And as always, we will begin our podcast with some structured chit-chat. Everyone's favorite part of the pod. TM. Not TMI. Trademark. Trademark structured chit-chat. Yes. TM structured chit-chat. I'm going to make structured chit-chat a thing, and when we're really popular, we're going to make merch that says structured chit-chat. When, not if. When. Have you been up to anything interesting this week? Let me think. Interesting things. Are we speaking hobbies? Are we speaking, like, things I am watching? I mean, we did. Well. Well. Well, little update for the listeners. I mean, granted... This will be updated on a delay, so, like, <laughs> potentially not timely, but this past week, in terms of Bachelor news, there's a lot of Bachelor news right now. Bachelor news, it's exploding. Are you aware, Megan? I don't, I'm sorry, I'm shaking my head. This is a podcast, okay. <laughs> um, I'm not aware. What's the, what's the Bachelor news? All right. Well, I, I'm a little concerned because things are changing by the minute. So if we, you know, we, we release this, things may be different at time of release. My apologies. So but to time date this as of March. Wait, six. Uh, six. Sorry, I'm in the future. We'll use California time. March 6th, about 9 p.m. Just about in California time. So keep that in mind. Um, I'm sure in the future things will be different. I'm hoping things will be different because Megan, oh my God, Bachelor World, things are imploding because, okay, do you know Chris Harrison? No. All right. Chris Harrison is the host of The Bachelor. He has oh. been the host since the show began back in, I want to say 2002, that's around the time that the show began. So almost 20 years at this point. Anyways, so I think last week or the week before, he did an interview with Extra where he basically outed himself as a racist. Oh no! (laughs) Exactly. So this has been blowing up Bachelor Nation, which is the name of the Bachelor fandom. Okay. Um, I am a part of Bachelor Nation, and um, it has been, it has rocked the nation. It is a big deal because 
they have pulled him from after the final rose, which is the final broadcast of the season. And it is very tentative at this point if he is going to be a part of The Bachelorette, which will begin, it will begin filming end of March and airing, I believe, May. So it's tentative if he is going to be a part of it. But this is huge news because this man has been the host for basically 20 years at this point. He is face of the franchise, but he outed himself as like an ignorant racist. What did he did he say? Yes, he defended a racist. So um, basically the presumed winner of the current season of The Bachelor, which by the way is the first season to have uh, this is the first season with the Black Bachelor. I remember you saying that. I remember you saying that this is the first time. So up until now they just had white men as the bachelor. Yes. Well, so there was one season that had Hispanic okay. Bachelor, but they've never had a Black Bachelor before. And the, by the way, I will say the Hispanic quote unquote Bachelor, I, I guess I shouldn't say quote unquote, but what the reason I use quotes is because he's white presenting. So like if you, he's white like got passing. blonde hair, you know what I mean? He's white passing. Yeah. So this uh, is a big deal. One question. How long has The Bachelor been going on? almost 20 years so they've had like 18 white bachelors i don't know if they did this oh, every year yep and like yep you are you are accurate who did the big deal the host uh defend what racist person did the host defend he defended the presumed winner winner quote unquote of the season her name is rachel kirkconnell people are speculating like it has been spoiled quote unquote by Reality Steve, who, if you're unaware of like bachelor terminology, Reality Steve is a person who often spoils the winner of The Bachelor. The Bachelor is the largest reality TV show in America right now. So (laughs) this is a big deal. I digress. He spoiled that Rachel Kirkconnell wins the season. Rachel Kirkconnell has been exposed as being involved in like a lot of racist activity. So like she's been pictured as dressing up in Native American like attire. She has been to um, antebellum old South parties, which is which is the the main like the crux of this issue. That's so very she's, interesting. I haven't even heard about that. I don't even know exactly what that is. It's just like a party that quote unquote uh, what's the word I'm looking for stylizes not stylizes uh, holds up like antebellum white people okay um it's interesting to me that you have never heard of these parties being from the south well that's the thing i that's what i find interesting i in my mind have a like an image of i know people who would do something like this and maybe it's just such a uh it maybe it's something that i've i've seen that like i don't agree with that i never thought of giving it a term but anyway tell me exactly what it is so basically She, I think she's from Georgia. I'm sorry if that's incorrect. I'm pretty sure she's from Georgia and she went to some university in the South and her sorority participated in these antebellum old South parties where you dress up as a plantation like owner, you party at like an old South house and 
you know, it's very celebratory of like old Southern customs. The thing that I find fucked up about this, I mean, there's a lot, but like, apparently these parties have been banned, but her sorority decided to like continue participating in them anyways. And she has pictures online of her participating in these parties. And so this became a scandal because it's like, you are involved in the first season with a black bachelor and you go far in the season apparently to her town that she grew up in is considered a quote unquote i've never heard of this before a sundown town oh yeah sundown town yep okay so you know about this i didn't know about this what like what have you heard about this term so sundown town i don't know how it works now currently using that term and what it means but in the past uh like in the throughout the 1900s a sundown town was basically a town that was just only white people and they wanted to keep it that way and if there was like a black person who went through uh that town basically they need to get out i think they need to get out by sundown or they're gonna get chased out they're gonna be in trouble they might get killed and it's just a place that's very unwelcoming to black people i i that's my understanding i could be a little bit wrong about that and so i guess if you're using that in current terminology it means a town made up mostly of white people that want to keep it that way and are kind of unfriendly to mm. black people. And I don't know how that works now because now I've found that white racist people in the South try to be more down on the down low about their racism because they know that it's not quote unquote okay in mm. the overall culture. Mm. No, that is exactly what I had heard about sundown towns. And so she grew up in like a town like that. So she kind of has like this background that's a little bit like embroiled in like racism. And apparently like there are people from her high school who, who have accused her of like making fun of people who like black people, like white girls who are interested in black men. I don't know. Anyways, she is a finalist this season. The Bachelor is a black man. His name is Matt James. And so this is just blown up to a huge scandal. And the reason why it blew up so hard is because for six weeks, she said nothing. And so I think like over time, it just like built and built and built. And then Chris Harrison, the host, went on extra and defended her and said like all this offensive shit, like that he did not need to say, like from a publicity standpoint, just saying things like, like she's just like a young woman having a good time and like this was so long ago it was 2018 2018 (laughs) was not that long ago my friend it really was not he's saying he said that she was school age or something like that um excuse me she was school age in 2018 she's 24 on the bachelor in 2020 she's not school age anyways it's become a huge scandal he it's questionable whether he is going to continue to host the show and Rachel Lindsay who was the first black lead of the show so the first black lead of the show was a bachelorette Rachel Lindsay love Rachel Lindsay if y'all haven't listened to higher learning podcast tune in that shit is so funny and informative I love Rachel Lindsay but she has received so much hate that she deactivated her Instagram people have been so hateful towards her and it's sad to think that like mainstream bachelor audience is fucking racist 
because they saw Chris Harrison's interview and said, you did nothing wrong. And it's like, excuse me, like defending Rachel's actions is wrong. And Rachel has since come forward and been like, like Rachel Lindsay or not Rachel Lindsay, sorry, Rachel Kirkconnell. Sorry, it's confusing because the two of them were both named Rachel. Wait, which one's Rachel Kirkconnell? The... Connell is the one that presumably ends up with Matt. Like, okay, she's, she's the, a... the the racist lady in question. She's the racist lady in question who went to antebellum parties. She's a white lady, and Matt James, the current bachelor, he's a black man. So, she's the presumed winner of the season, and um, she has since come forward and like made a statement saying like, like stop defending me. What I did was wrong. Like blah 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 anti-racist stuff like clearly she is aware that like what she has done was wrong but oh like it is it has rocked the nation i'm telling you so this is the this is the tea that is lighting up bachelor nation and i am you know i am keeping up with it it's you know it's these are uh interesting times to be part of bachelor nation that sounds crazy so to, uh, <laughs> to TLDR that, just so I understand everything, this Rachel lady is potentially going to be the winner, and the winner means that she quote she like gets together with the Bachelor, okay, mm-hmm. and she did some things in the past that were racist, and yes. currently, currently it seems like she maybe understands that, mm-hmm. and the host defended her past actions as well. Yes. Okay. Yes. Well, that sucks that she did do those racist things in the past uh at least it i, I don't know at least she's trying to handle it nicer mm-hmm. well if she does win mm-hmm. i mean she did choose a black man but also you can like just because you date just because you're even if you're married to someone of a different race doesn't mean that you're not racist but 100 that is interesting i didn't know that there was that that kind of scandal all right well that is structured chit chat and actually i have some brief podcast comments uh, this Go is our fourth episode, so thanks for wait, tuning no, in. No, wait. Wait, is it the fourth? Yeah, it is the fourth episode. The You're fourth so episode. right. I'm the, I'm the even episodes. Yep, you are the even episodes, so yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm the odds, Rebecca's the evens. Uh, this is our fourth episode. Yeah, Rebecca will be telling me about a topic I don't know yet. I'm excited to find out. She always gives me cryptic info about it. She said it's completely <laughs> different than Starbucks. It's a little serious. But fourth episode, we are also now on Apple Podcasts. So we are on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. And if you have access to Apple Podcasts, meaning you have an iPhone, some sort of iDevice, please go over there and rate us and leave a review. Hopefully you'll rate us nicely, but we will accept whatever rating because we have no No. choice. We No, we don't (laughs) want a zero star or a half star or one star. Are you kidding me? Only give us a five star review. If you're unenthusiastic... Wait until you feel more enthusiastic about us. <laughs> yeah, please go leave us a review. If you, you know, don't want to write out a review, you know, you could leave us a five-star one. But if you have time, you know, write out a review. I don't know if that – it's probably worth more if you write something uh, on the – I mean on the, the like, iTunes charts. So – not iTunes, Apple Podcast charts. So, yes, please do that because that will help us when we have reviews. That will make us more likely to show up on somebody's feed if we ever get enough listeners. And also, if you listen to us on Spotify, give us a follow. Follow us. You can't review us, but click that follow button. And Follow us. We do have... We put our show notes on Instagram and Twitter. So our Twitter is TMI underscore pod. Yes. And what's our Instagram? 
It is That's My Interest Pod. All yes. one word. And we have started linking those into the description box. So pop on down there. And if you don't like Spotify and you don't like Apple Podcasts, I don't know how you're listening to us. But uh, we're also on Podbean, which is a website. That's our, our podcast hosting website. And they have their own app and a website. So you could also listen to it on there if you're not a big fan of Spotify or Apple Podcasts. And you can rate us there and follow us there. And you can also leave comments there. We have a lovely comment left by a listener named Megan's Mom. Thank you, Mom, for that comment. <laughs> she did. She left us. Very, she left us a very uh, nice comment on our first episode. So thanks, Mom. I appreciate it. Yeah. Thank so you. cool. So, do you have anything else to say about the pod? Are you ready to get going? I'm ready to get going. I'm excited. Right. Okay. Well, are you ready for me to speak on the topic? I guess I am. I okay. Guess. Okay. So, uh, are you are you ready to reveal? I'm, I'm, right. I'm excited. I am. All right. I'm ready. My topic this time is Hofstede's cultural dimensions. Have you heard of this? I think I have actually. Sorry, before that, I was saying this earlier before we recorded, but I'm always terrified you're going to say my topic for some reason. And I was like, she's going to say my topic. She's going to say next week's topic. And then, and, then you were, and then you said something that was like completely in left field. And I was like, okay, I don't know why I worried. Rebecca and I are two different Ooh. humans. Um, yes. But yes, I think I have heard of it. I, at our English teacher training conferences here, we had a professor who come, sometimes came in and talked about like, cultural differences and stuff and i feel like she threw that name around and so she may have shown us some of that information okay that's good for me to know but it sounds like you're not familiar to the point where you can recall all like aspects of this theory i can't because she also showed us a couple of different things and i didn't remember which name was which i uh, is it the thing about is there something about high context and low context cultures in this? Nope, that's something different. Okay, cool. Because I didn't really like all that. <laughs> that's a different thing. Okay. That's a different thing. I'm going to be talking about Hofstede's cultural dimensions theory. Okay. And so my questions, my initial question was that, have you ever heard of it? It sounds like you have. I've heard the name. And my follow-up question was, if you have, which it sounds like you have, what do you know about him, so Hofstede, or it, like the theory? I guess not anything. Is he German? Uh, no, he is Dutch. Oh, that's next to Germany. No, it's not. It's not. No. Is it? Well, I, I think of our friend, our mutual friend, and he is like, yeah, hasn't he, like, you know who I'm talking about. Hasn't he, like, like he knows both languages and has like lived in both places. And so in my mind, I like, no, no, wait, no, no. He has about, lived in, he's lived in our, Austria. I was That's like, you're talking about our Austrian friend. I was like, are you fucking talking about? Austria is not the same as, as the Netherlands. No. I'm so sorry. No, oh my God. Gernot, if you're listening, we're sorry. <laughs> I'm so sorry. I know, Gernot. I know where you're from, Gernot. And I love you. Thank Gernot, you I still love you. <laughs> Oh I don't God, remember where the Netherlands is. It's close to Germany. I can't remember if it's next to it. I think it's next to Belgium. North. 
We're from we're from America. Actually, I'm pretty good at geography. I'm from but I'm America, like, and I'm bad at geography. So, hey, if you're European and you're listening to this, try to write out all fifty states on a map. Bet you can't do it. I can do exactly. it. Exactly. I think I could. Do I it. can't. I'm like geography. I'm legendarily bad at geography. So, like, don't even. Okay. Well, don't attempt it. Now that I've got a little bit of a gauge of where you're at, I'll give you a bio, a, a brief bio. So Hofstede, his first name is Hans. Gear. Gear. What's his first name? I'm, I'm so sorry. Spell I it. Just G-E-E-R-T. Geert, Gert. That's exactly how I would pronounce it. I'm so sorry if that is the incorrect pronunciation. But he if, was. I just have to say, if, if you're out there and you're mad at us because you can't pronounce something, you start a podcast. You try to pronounce shit. It's really <laughs> difficult. I literally Googled how to pronounce this and they said Geert, but okay. I don't know if that's correct. So my bad Geert. if it's not. We're going with Geert. We're going with that. He was born on October 2nd, 1928. And actually, he passed away last February 2020. So he oh, lived wow. a very long life. That's shit. How long is that? It's like 91, 92, I think. Not 122. Nothing compared <laughs> to our, you know, super centurions. I think that's the term. Yep. That we, you know, those people. Good job. You learned. Episode. You learned from my I, episode. I'm so proud of I you. Learn things. You get a gold um, star. Thank you for the gold star. Uh, that means a lot to me. But Hofsted was a Dutch social psychologist and former IBM employee. So he conducted his research at IBM. He conducted surveys across the world at IBM subsidiaries. So he conducted these surveys at over 70 subsidiaries across the world. So these surveys resulted in over 100,000 plus questionnaires. So he had quite a large sample. He took a sabbatical to complete his research, but when he returned, he found that he didn't have the opportunity to like fully invest in the research. So he left the company to focus solely on his research. Wow. And as I stated before, he passed away in February, 2020. But the definition of this theory is basically that so it's a foundational work in cross-cultural communication management psychology etc it's a way to appraise and understand cultural value differences and it provides a basis of comparison from one culture to another and he does so along what he like refers to as dimensions okay this is interesting before we start can i make a comment about yes controversial opinion not meant to offend you no i just wanted to have a discussion about this so i we're very different in that you're very interested in cultural communication and cultural stuff you want to study that more in the future Mm -hmm. right and i i I definitely know that that stuff has value and i struggle sometimes and i i have come up with a solution about how to deal with this and understand that cultural communication is important but i struggle sometimes because i living in japan and I'm also in charge of advising new English teachers on my program that come in. And so I deal with like orientation and trying to teach them 
about how to live in Japan. And sometimes it's a very thin line between giving them things that are useful and kind of broaching into saying problematic stuff. And I sometimes get really annoyed because the expat community here uh, can get very toxic and can say like, Japanese people do this, Japanese people do this, this, and this. And it, it borders on racist sometimes, I think. And I've found myself saying and doing stuff that I think is inappropriate. And I think the thing to remember with these cultural differences is that they are important if for understanding communication, especially between two, like, for example, if you have two people that don't know anything about the culture. So for example, if we had like my father who doesn't know anything about Japan and lives in like, you know, the small town in the US and we put him in Japan with someone who lives in the middle of nowhere in Japan, they don't have any context to like, they might do things that the other person finds strange. And that is something to remember. But I think it's also important to remember that someone like me who consciously makes the decision to go to Japan and study Japanese, I do understand Japan a little bit better. So I don't need the same level, I guess, of information. And sorry. And the more important thing that I want to say about this is also remember that people in different cultures are individuals because Mm. I don't know exactly what we're going to cover. But, you know, if you if you say something like Japanese, a generalization, generalizations usually aren't super good. But like Japanese people are always clean. Japan itself is a very clean country, but I don't know. My like some of my coworkers have the messiest desk ever, and it's because mm-hmm. everybody's an individual and they exist at different places on a scale. Mm-hmm. And quote unquote, mm-hmm. Japanese people aren't what's the word as open or w- with like their style of communication. Generally, maybe true, but I've also had mm-hmm. some coworkers or some friends that are much very direct with me, and maybe it's because they know I'm not Japanese, or maybe that's their personality. So just as a remember that whenever you meet someone from a different culture, mm-hmm. treat them like an individual. Sorry, that's just something I wanted to say because I have encountered people, but not from a scholarly point of view, just random people talking about quote-unquote cultural stuff and like using it in a problematic way. Anyway, tell me what you think about all that. You're nodding a lot, so that's good. <laughs> no, um, there is a portion of this discussion that I am reserving for objections or critiques of okay. this theory. There are plenty of critiques to this theory because after all, cultural differences or cultural norms is in he is attempting to measure an immeasurable thing right so completely agree with you and that is actually one of the critiques that I have mentioned later in this pod that (laughs) that it does not account necessarily for differences in individuals because for example you know you know, there are certainly, you know, plenty of people within Japan or the United States who break the cultural, like, average for these dimensions, you know, on on an average, you know, you could be an outlier. And, you know, therefore, you know, people might walk into a culture or a, a country or something and assume that, like, people are a certain way due to, like, this theory or whatever. But in reality, you know, on an individual level, obviously people are quite different. So completely agree with what you're saying. And that is definitely a major critique of this theory. Keep in mind too, this theory came out in the eighties. So it's been like a lot of time since this came out. Okay. Well, cool. I'm glad we can discuss that more. And I guess the thing I'm going to think about with this and you telling me about it is how can this be useful In what circumstances Mm -hmm. should we use this in? Is, are Mm -hmm. there any? Let's jump into the dimensions, which is the obviously foundational and critical component of this theory. Okay. So if, if you have heard of any of these or like have information, definitely, you know, jump in, chime in. Okay. The first one I'm going to talk about is 
individualism slash collectivism. Yes. Is this ring a bell? Yes, we did this. <laughs> this was on one of those graphs. I think she showed us some Hofstetter graphs. Okay, anyway, continue. Okay, cool. So this dimension refers to the emphasis on the individual versus an emphasis on the collective group. So this is an identity dimension. Think of it as like the I versus the we. In individualist societies, people are supposed to look after themselves and their direct family only. In collectivist societies, people belong to in-groups that take care of them in exchange for loyalty. This is a quote, by the way, from the Hofstede Insights website. So my primary sources for this like are that that website. There, I did source Wikipedia, like don't hate me. And I did source my own presentations that I have saved on my laptop from when I was a graduate student, as well as my own presentations I created as a graduate student because Hofstede's cultural dimensions was like an integral, integral theory that I studied as a graduate student. Nice. So just so you know, basically like the idea is like a certain societies place more emphasis being an individual, being a unique person like a quote-unquote like special snowflake so to speak versus like being a part of the group being like the nail that sticks out gets hammered down that type of thing more collectivist like there are different perspectives on like how you view yourself um another so within each dimension just for your reference because i feel like using examples is a really good way to illustrate this theory. I have included the scores for the United States and Japan. I already know. I know where we are. I feel like I know which ones we are. All right. So in terms of scale from one to 100, where do you think the United States scores for individualism? Oh, individualism. So the higher is more individual. Higher is the more individualism. Individualism. Um, I think we're probably about an 82 a good guess we are a 90 oh really we're higher than i thought okay but there are some countries that were higher than us like wasn't it like singapore was really individualist so, or is that the opposite what i have linked in the google doc so if you open the google doc you can open the hofstede insights yeah. website and you can type in any country to see like where they rank so the gonna... u.s is a 90 where do you think japan ranks they're like a 20 no, Japan's a little bit, a little bit higher than that. What's interesting. So this is a quote from the website as you're searching. I will just like read some of the quotes I have. So by Western standards, the Japanese are seen as collectivist, but by Asian standards, actually Japan is seen as an individualist. Oh, that's very interesting. I did uh, just yeah. type in China while I was doing that. And I saw that they are a 20 on yes. the individualists. Yes. What is Japan? So, so China and Korea rank exceptionally low. China is a 20. Korea is 18. Wow. But Japan, as you'll see, is I just, 46. I just looked it up. That's so high. That's higher than I thought. Yes. That is huh. higher than I thought as well. So I will read this quote from, from the website, which may give you a little bit more background. 
The most popular explanation for this is that Japanese society does not have extended family systems, which form a base of more collectivist societies such as China and Korea. Japan has been a paternalistic society and the family name and asset was inherited from father to the eldest son. The younger siblings had to leave home and make their own living with their core families. One seemingly paradoxical example is that Japanese are famous for their loyalty to their companies, which to me as an American would symbolize or like represent their collectivist like nature versus, you know, in America where we company hop. However, it says company loyalty is something which people have chosen for themselves, which is an individualist thing to do. So I think that this quote kind of illustrates the fact that like you can kind of bend this theory to like make sense in the way that you wanted to yeah you know you can that's a good point that's like uh there's um a book i haven't read but i heard about talks about like social science and they open it with a chapter where they present like five social science like statistics and then they come up with reasons why and then at the end of the chapter they're like actually all of those were bullshit so uh be careful (laughs) yes precisely This quote is actually from one of my professors who taught me a class on like cultural differences. And he said, collectivism does not equal altruism and individualism does not equal selfishness. And I think that's that's an important point to make because I think that like there's an assumption that like uh, being focused on yourself is like, or like being focused on the individual is a selfish thing. But in reality, individuals can be kind to one another groups can be hateful towards another it's there's no moral like value associated with either that's a good point it also makes me think about how in movies and tv shows like if it's like an action or an apocalypse i feel like the most selfish people are the ones who have their family that they're taking care of uh so i'm Mm -hmm. I'm not saying that people with who care about their family are selfish but i can definitely see how that would make you selfish to people who aren't Mm -hmm. part of that group that you're protecting protecting or a part of mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. no 100% the next dimension within Hofstad is uncertainty avoidance have you heard of this dimension yes yes I actually I, I this is great this is exactly not exactly but I did get presentations about this where we were showed charts and with different countries including U.S. and Japan it's called uncertainty avoidance yes another way you can state it is like risk avoidance how willing are people to take a risk within a culture because i remember this one is also very this one's different for the u.s and japan i think they're on opposite ends of the scale a little bit more in this dimension he describes this as the way that a society deals with the fact that the future can never be known the extent to which the members of a culture feel threatened by ambiguous or unknown situations and have created beliefs and institutions that try to avoid these is reflected in the score on uncertainty avoidance. And for your reference, so actually, so America scores a 46, which is very, you know, kind of middle of the road in terms of risk avoidance. Do I get to guess Japan? Um, you want to guess Japan? Guess Japan. It's at 18. No, no. The higher you score, the higher risk avoidant you are. Is it, what's 18 minus 100? Is it 88? No, 82. Is it 82? 
You're very close. It's 92. Oh, shit. So it's very, very high, which makes sense, I feel, if like you've lived in Japan. So I'll read like this quote from the website. It's, It's rather long, but it says, at 92, Japan is one of the most uncertainty avoiding countries on earth. This is often attributed to the fact that Japan is constantly threatened by natural disasters, earthquakes, <laughs> Sorry, tsunamis. That's not funny. <laughs> no, it's true. Oh, God. Typhoons, volcanic eruptions, etc. Under these circumstances, Japanese learn to prepare themselves for any uncertain situation. This goes not only for the emergency plan and precautions for sudden natural disasters, but also for every other aspect of society. You could say that in Japan, anything you do is prescribed for maximum predictability. From cradle to grave, life is highly ritualized and you have a lot of ceremonies. For example, there's opening and closing ceremonies of every school year, which are conducted almost exactly the same way everywhere in Japan. At weddings, funerals, and other important social events, what people wear and how people should behave are prescribed in great detail and adequate books. School teachers and public servants are reluctant to do things without precedence. In corporate Japan, a lot of time and effort is put into feasibility studies and all the risk factors must be worked out before any project can start. Managers ask for all the detailed facts and figures before taking any decision. This high need for uncertainty avoidance is one of the reasons why changes are so difficult to realize in Japan. There's a fair degree of acceptance for new ideas, innovative products, and a willingness to try something new or different, whether it pertains to technology, business practices, or food. Okay, so this this part here, the second part here, is related to Americans. Americans tend to be more tolerant of ideas or opinions from anyone and allow the freedom of expression. At the same time, Americans do not require a lot of rules and are less emotionally expressive than higher scoring cultures. At the same time, 9-11 has created a lot of fear in the American society, culminating in the efforts of government to monitor everybody through the NSA and other security organizations. So, sorry, this is a very long quote, but I do feel like, especially the part about Japan, very much so, like, illustrates society in Japan. The Japan one, yeah, I I'm, I don't know if you were looking at me, but I was making lots of faces. Um, I like the beginning part of it where it talked about the mm-hmm. natural disasters. I did mm-hmm. not consider that that's why Japan is very risk-avoidant, and it makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. And hearing that made me a little less frustrated <laughs> with uh, some of the problems that I have encountered with the things that were listed there. And yeah. that makes it make a lot more sense. That is interesting. Thank you for sharing. And the thing yeah. about the U.S. makes sense as well, as well since we're, we're what, 46 or about middle of the road. Middle of the road, yeah. Do you know what? Did you look up any, like, really extreme, uh, the, the ones who are lower? Because I think Singapore was surprisingly, like, a 12 or something. Okay. I didn't, but that was, like, kind of my intended plan for, like, later parts of the episode, if we have the time, yes. to, like, kind of look up I countries up. and stuff. I looked up. Singapore is an 8. Oh. That is insane. That's I've never insane. been to Singapore. That makes me want to go to Singapore, baby. Yeah, I don't know that what the reason is. I remembered that from the presentation because she she was at Singapore. She's like, and look at Singapore. Because we do have English teachers from Singapore. So maybe she wanted to highlight that. She's like, yeah, look at Singapore over here with an eight. What are they doing? <laughs> but, like the flip of Japan. Yeah, so that is interesting. Well, Singapore, 
never mind. Now I'm gonna I'm gonna put on my social scientist hat. Singapore is just it's a single city. I mean, it's a big it's a city as a country, and it's very capitalistic. So, I don't know. Maybe that has something to do with it. Hmm. I'd love to visit Singapore. I can't speak to their culture. Anyways, digress. Yeah, yeah digress. Um. So I didn't mention this before, but initially when Hofstad developed this theory, he created four dimensions. Now there are six, but okay. I'm, I'm introducing to you the four and then I will follow up with the six okay. to, or the, the, the two that were added. Four though, the four initial dimensions are the ones I've studied the most. Okay. The next one, power distance. Have you heard of power distance? I do, but I don't remember what it is. So please tell me. Okay. So it's the extent to which the less powerful members of institutions and organizations within a country expect and accept that power is distributed unequally. And what I thought was like a really cool quote from the Hofstad website is that it said, the fact that everybody is unique implies that we are all unequal. I love that quote though. Like that is so interesting. I don't think it has. I mean, yes and no. I can definitely Mm. see how being unique could mean that you're unequal, but it doesn't have to mean that. Well, I think what it means is that, like, for example, you are unique for me. And, like, you have unique strengths that I do not possess. It doesn't mean that, like, you are greater than me or I am greater than you. But, like, in certain aspects, you know more than me. And in other, you know, know, we kind of, like, balance each other out, so to speak. I view it kind of that way, but like you and I are not equal in the sense that like, for example, when it comes to something like science, you're much more knowledgeable than I am. Yeah. But when you maybe balance out all those things that I'm more knowledgeable about and you're more knowledgeable about, couldn't you end up being equal? That's true. But I think a big thing that's emphasized within like power distance, at least the way that I understand it, because I hope listeners understand. So I have a master's of international business. When I discovered, or like when I began to study this theory, I was a business student. So I studied it in the context of Mm. business. And so when I began to understand it, I sort of thought of it as like the the distance between an employee and a manager. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah. Okay. And And, so, you know, within that context, Another quote that I found interesting from the website was that it said it has to do with the fact that a society's inequality is endorsed by the followers as much as by the leaders. And I thought that was interesting because I think like the the assumption when you hear this is that, you know, you would think about like a power hungry leader and like a very submissive or like, you know, powerless following. But that's not the case the implication of this dimension is that like the people who are in a less powerful position, like accept that position. Okay. That makes sense. I can see how that makes sense. And what's interesting about this dimension is that both the United States and Japan kind of score in what I would consider to be the middle range. Oh, really? And that, so the United States scores about a 40. Japan scores about a 54 so like that would be that's not extreme either way what is your like kind of feeling on this so 
when you first said it, I was thinking about in Japan. I was like, oh, yeah, Japan is going to be slightly higher on this, at least in a business sense, because your boss, you're supposed to respect. They have a lot more power. They get to make decisions. And a lot of times people don't argue against those. It's just, okay, my boss made this decision. I have to stick to it. Mm-hmm. And But also, when you after you said that, you know, the U.S. wasn't that much lower. That does make sense. It was a little bit lower, right? So we don't, I guess, adhere to that as much, right, is what that score means. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But in a work context, that's definitely true. I can see that's true, especially um, growing up in the South. We're told a lot to respect our elders, and you're supposed to, like, follow with the the elderly, elderly, (laughs) like, people Mm -hmm. who are older than you do, you know, your teachers and such. And I used to adhere to that much more when I was younger. Now I'm I'm a bit more anti that. My dad all the time. All <laughs> um, one time I answered the phone. And I just said, "Hey, what's up, Dad?" And he said, "Is that any way to talk to your father?" <laughs> also, my dad's about eighty nine percent sarcasm. I don't know why I said eighty nine, but he's like, "You gotta respect your elders, Megan." And like he was kind of joking, but I do think he a little bit thinks that I can sometimes be a little too uh, loosey goosey in the way that I talk to people older than me. Hmm. So anyway, those scores make sense, I guess, is the point mm-hmm. I'm making. But then again, those scores would probably make sense no matter where they are. If you were like, if you were like, America's a one, I'd be like, yeah, we hate, we fucking hate people in power. No. <laughs> so. I know that's, that's, you know, an issue. You can kind of justify a lot of the scores, but we'll, we'll get to that in the critique. Final of the initial four dimensions is masculinity femininity have you heard of this dimension i have and i can't remember exactly what it means and i if i feel like it doesn't mean exactly what my initial reaction says it means yes okay so it doesn't refer to actual like masculinity femininity a better way to refer to it and what has kind of more recently been referred to as task orientation versus people orientation and so it refers to like associated values. Why? So within. So when was this? When was the scale in these uh, four dimensions invented? Invented. It was in the eighties. I believe it was actually in the year nineteen eighty. Well, I feel like this was a slightly problematic. Uh, I hate to speak ill of the dead, but Hofstadter. I do think this is a slightly problematic terminology, but we're just gonna go with it because we're no. stuck with it. Agree. To confirm. Um, Feminine means uh, people-oriented, and masculine means task-oriented. You are correct. So within masculine, quote-unquote, cultures, there is a maximized social sex role division. So the importance is placed on showing off, performing, achieving something visible, making money, a.k.a. quote-unquote ego goals. That makes sense. Okay. Yes. Within feminine cultures... There's a relatively small social sex role division, and the importance is placed on not showing off, but relationships, quality of life, preservation of the environment, helping others, et cetera, a.k.a. social goals. Can I make some some predictions on (laughs) Japan and America? Yes. So higher score is more masculine, quote unquote? Yes. Okay, I would guess Japan is on the feminine side, but not like crazy. I don't know. I'd give them a 30 U.S. is probably more on the opposite end. Uh, give us an 85. That is so interesting. <laughs> so It's the opposite. <laughs> a quote from Hofstede, the website, the Hofstede Insights website, states, 
The fundamental issue here is what motivates people wanting to be the best, which is masculine, or liking what you do, which is feminine. Oh, so does that mean that Japan's going to be much higher than what I said? Because Japan is a very, uh, not liking what you do, trying to be the best. Japan wants to be the best. Oh my God. Okay. Well, what is- I am nodding right now. What are they then? (laughs) So actually, (laughs) so interesting. So Japan is actually- the most masculine country. Oh my country. god! <laughs> See, the <this> stuff. <laughs> it scores I... a 95. <laughs> 95! It scores, it scores a 95. Man, I feel like 95. an idiot. I feel like and an idiot. then America scores a 62. So right. America's less masculine, which is crazy. But okay. okay, so this is actually something that um, if you open the Google Doc and scroll down to the second page, this is something I'm going to refer to. So okay. do you see the slide that says World Happiness Report? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to look, but can I process this for a moment? I'm trying to process. think about... Process. Um, I have to process being so wrong. My self-esteem can't handle it. <laughs> I need I need to like take some, some anxiety medicine. No, I'm just kidding. It again goes to show you that... I don't know what it goes to show you that this is all bullshit. No, <laughs> no, it goes. Well, to sh- it's, it's, you know, it's like the thing is, as I said before, culture and cultural value differences are immeasurable. It's yeah. not like math, you know? Yeah. And that's true. And I mean, it could also be just a, not me, not, not, I, I was wrong, but it could be me com- not completely understanding what the masculine means and what the, the, the femininity means. And I guess your point about, I didn't think about the being the best thing. I guess I was thinking about flashy stuff. And I think I was also not thinking about this in a business context, which I think is also relevant. Okay. But beyond that, think about the social sex role division. Like I feel like in Japan, it is even more emphasized than it Wait, is in that? the United States. You mean like men like do men women stuff? Stay and women... home. If you told me that, I would have been like, yeah, Japan's a 95. <laughs> Okay. Yeah. I mean, I guess you did tell me that. But if I had registered that, I would have been like, <laughs> what was, okay. All right. I'm looking at it. You World Happiness Report rankings. Okay. okay. All right. So this is actually a screenshot of a slide from a presentation that I did as a graduate student. As so, a, is that a lesbian couple? Um, This is just a picture I posted right. on the internet. They just um, look like a really happy lesbian couple. And I like I it. hope they are. I mean, they're probably models anyway. They probably are models. But so like I did a project on the masculinity dimension as a graduate student. And like something I noticed was that it seemed like a lot of the countries that ranked like very low in this dimension ranked highly in the world happiness report, which granted this slide I'm showing you is from 2017. So like things could have massively changed since then. I'm not sure. But as you can see from this slide that like I'm showing you, this is so the countries here are ranked by like one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. This is the top 10 countries in terms of the quote unquote world happiness report, which, you know, is a Shall yearly I? report that is issued based on like happiness shall i read them in order yeah with i won't i I assume that parentheses is the masculinity score yes Uh, i won't read that at first just the countries Mm -hmm. yes okay so for the world happiness in 2017 i'm gonna start from number 10 so the 10th happiest country was sweden Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. then australia 
New Zealand, Canada, Netherlands, Finland, Switzerland. Third place goes to Iceland. Second mm-hmm. place, Denmark. And first place is, drumroll please, Norway. Yes. Okay, so just so everyone knows, uh, I'm sure we could also put this list up on our show notes. And I'm sure it's changed as of 2021. Yes. However, um, you know, as you can see, a lot of these countries are like Nordic. Yeah, countries. I was I was thinking that as I read the list. Yeah, um, and as you can see to the right, the parenthesis, you know, the the number in parentheses is the masculinity score. So Norway has an eight score, which is very low. It so it's a low. you know a highly you know quote unquote feminine or like people-oriented country. Denmark is a 16. Iceland is a 10. Uh, Switzerland's a little bit of outlier here because of like 70. I know, I, I saw I, that. I feel like that has to do, this is speculation, but I feel like this might have to do with the fact that like so many foreigners have like offshore bank accounts. In <laughs> That's a good point. Um, and then Finland's a 26. Netherlands is a 14. Like there's so many low ranking countries in this report that I, I'm not trying to like be a social scientist here, but like this was my project as a graduate student. And like, I can't help but see a correlation here. You know, that like countries that are more people oriented tend to rank higher on this list. Okay. Japan's nowhere near the top 10. That's all no, I'm saying. No, I bet it's not. I bet Japan does not rank super high on World Happiness Report because they have the second highest suicide rate in the world. Yep. Yeah. Yep. And the only person who beats them is Korea. Yeah, which is yep. uh, nowhere near the top 10 as well. Um, but, so in terms of dimensions, I've explained to you the four, the four initial dimensions, but the additional two that they added, yeah. um, like later on. What are they? Um, so I will like kind of qualify this conversation um, in that when I was a graduate student, I primarily studied the four, the, the later two I briefly touched upon, but like didn't study as in depth. But anyways, they are long-term orientation. That's the first one. So the description of this is, this dimension describes how every society has to maintain some links with its own past while dealing with the challenges of the present and future. And societies prioritize these two existential goals differently. Normative societies, which score low on this dimension, for example, prefer to maintain time-honored traditions Mm -hmm. and norms which, uh, while viewing societal change with suspicion. Hmm. Those with a culture which scores high, on the other hand, take a more pragmatic approach. They encourage thrift and efforts in modern education as a way to prepare for the future. So I like take a little, I don't want to say issue, but like I'm confused by this dimension in that. So hearing this, so the United States scores a 26, which would indicate that we are a culture which maintains time-honored traditions and views societal change with suspicion. That makes sense to me to some extent, because I do feel like, you know, we have a lot of areas of the country which are not progressive. Like, I think we're slow moving because we are such a large country. I feel like, would you not agree? 
I, yeah, I feel like especially white people that could apply mm-hmm. to. I agree. So like I can rationalize that. But what doesn't make sense to me is Japan scores an 88, which would indicate that they, you know, take a more pragmatic approach. They encourage thrift and efforts in modern education as a way to prepare for the future. This is confusing to me because I feel like Japan more than the United States yeah. certainly like, you know, it's traditional and like, you know, it's, is uh, not quick to like adapt to, you know, societal change. Did they, did you find any explanation of that? Cause I have an idea. Well, we will have to, when we, you know, kind of click because my later part of this activity is that we will go on the website and kind of play okay. around. Well, I was but, thinking you know. the only thing I could think about for Japan is yeah. Mm-hmm. In my understanding, at least from what I've seen, we do like, traditions but when you think about japan in the 1900s japan Mm. went through crazy cultural change because Mm. they at the beginning of the 1900s they were very uh imperialistic and they wanted an empire they were like they saw the western countries and they were like hey they have empires everybody had empires can't we have an empire so i mean i still blame the jap the people the japanese people who decided to have an empire but they did get the idea from elsewhere and they're very imperialistic very shitty to China and Korea and then they lost World War II and the U.S. came in and we gave them a brand new constitution and then they had to deal with that and you know things were kind of unsteady financially and then they just like fucking shot up and did so well financially and I just wonder if maybe during that time period especially the 1980s when this oh wait no sorry this these were added later but anyway still just like throughout the 1900s things were very tumultuous and maybe that had some effect on why they have such a high score. Next one is what is called self-restraint slash indulgence. And the description is, this dimension is defined as the extent to which people try to control their desires and impulses based on the way they were raised. A tendency toward a relatively weak control over their impulses is called indulgence, whereas a relatively strong control over their urges is called restraint. The United States ranks at a 68 and Japan ranks at a 42, which I'm assuming means the United States is a little bit more indulgent. Japan is a little bit more restrained. So a higher score is indulgence? I believe so. Although this is the particular dimension, which I I have no experience like studying. Okay. I briefly studied long-term orientation. I never studied indulgence. Well, in the nation of Megan... We are, uh, we are an 80. No, actually, I'm actually, I'm a solid, I'm a solid 50, probably. I, I like to restrain and also indulge. I know what you mean. I, I've indulged more in my recent life, but okay. I've been very, like, fiscally, like, I've been very tight with my money in the past, just because I'm so used to being scrappy and having nothing. There you go. From being um, in grad school in Tokyo. Yep. yep. Yes, it was a uh, tough goes it. But the next portion is kind of some objections to Hofstede. And so I wanted, before I kind of dive into anything, to ask you, what are some objections you can think of to this theory slash the dimensions? Like, is there anything that popped up to you where you were like, mm, like, that's not really true? Or like, mm, I question that. Well, first of all, the thing I brought up earlier, it's just that... Uh... It doesn't necessarily describe individual behavior. You know, they mm-hmm. these were based on surveys, right? So they yes. just had people from that country answer questions and then basically just average all those. 
to my knowledge. Yeah, so then that means there's some people. So an average means that some people were above that. Some people were below that. Some people were right at that. And I mm -hmm. guess my question is, how is this useful? How is it useful? I guess I don't know if that's an objection. That's an objection. How is it, how mm. is it useful? How should we mm -hmm. use this? Mm. Something immediately from what you said, I'm immediately reminded of and which is a part of the objections is that there's a huge sampling discrepancy. So I don't know uh, if you remembered, but the fact that I, you know, in the beginning I, I mentioned this, but that he sampled IBM employees. So the only people that he surveyed are people who worked for IBM. I'm sorry, and what? That's bullshit. That's absolute exactly. bullshit. Did he, he only asked IBM employees in different countries? Yeah. He only asked IBM employees and granted, it's across 70 countries, but the reality is that, so this is a quote, says, even if country indices were used to control for wealth, latitude, population size, density, and growth, privileged males working as engineers or sales personnel in one of the elite organizations of the world, pioneering one of the first multinational projects in history, cannot be claimed to represent their nations. And this is so accurate because the reality is that few, if any women and undoubtedly fewer social minorities participated in this. So the reality is that most of the people participated were men and they were, you know, social, social majorities in terms of their race. So there's a huge discrepancy. Oh my God. Mm -hmm. I would like to say that we have to end the podcast now because <laughs> everything we've said means nothing. This is bullshit. Why did you tell me about this, Rebecca? No, I'm just joking. But um, I, I'm just gonna say you've. I give this man no credence now. That is absolute bullshit. <laughs> that is that is so that is the biggest fucking weakness of all time. And actually, it's now reminding me of things that I found strange throughout. It totally makes sense. Why the fuck is Japan a ninety-five on the masculine thing? Because they fucking asked IBM employees. Like, of course, I bet uh, someone who works at a big company in Japan. This all makes sense. This Especially makes in sense. the eighties. This all makes sense, and this is all worthless. <laughs> Uh, no, no, that is another critique of this of this theory, which is that he does nothing to control for gender. And the reality is that men and women's culture in society is oftentimes totally different. Like the lived experience of someone like me, a woman in America, is totally different from a man in America. And it's even more like stratified in other countries. And then even more different if you're, you know, a black woman or like some, you know what I mean? Like some other race, or, like it doesn't account for that. Or you just work at McDonald's. Like, mm. I mean, like not everybody's gonna work for a big company. And I don't know. No. Like, yeah. IBM employees are incredibly privileged yes. people, right? You know, they're elite. That's elite. I'm really upset that that really that cool lady gave us this information and didn't mention this. Man. I know. So that's a huge issue with the theory is that even if he, he did, you know, you know, obviously he probably like indexed this to try attempt to control for the fact that like the survey is incredibly biased. But it doesn't, you know, the survey is still incredibly biased. How, how can you, like, how can you fix that? Can you talk me, talk me off this ledge? I'm about to throw I, this I theory. I can't. Or I can't just even talk it? you off the ledge. Are I can't even me? talk you off the ledge. The like, thing, thing is, though, like, 
this is a foundational work. It has issues. I'm sure there were some type of controls that were implemented. I don't, I can't speak to those controls though. And I will say that this podcast is definitely very top line. You can dive much deeper yeah. into this. This is very top line. If, if I were to go do a deep dive, this would be like a five hour long podcast. That's true. <laughs> I guess when you said that, that this is like a part of the structure of cultural understanding or like it's it's been i forgot what words you used because my brain is mush right now no uh, fundamental <laughs> fundamental yes so you said okay uh that i'm like a little offended <laughs> <laughs> so fundamental. and i was like i was like for a second i was like rebecca you paid a shit ton of money for people to teach you this shit but also you are in business school and i could mm -hmm. see this being very useful in business school oh. so maybe that's the maybe that's the lesson we should take i'm gonna back up from the ledge a little bit and just remember that maybe this is more relevant to mm. communication between businesses because that mm. has value, mm. right? That is value well, in international business, right? It definitely has value. You also have to think about it as like, this was published, I believe in 1980. If it wasn't the year 1980, it was definitely in the decade of the eighties. So obviously this was, you know, quite a bit of time ago lots of studies and like you know uh, critiques yeah. and things have been published since then so like you know but this is a jumping off point and it's important mm. for us to learn in the field of for example cross-cultural management which is something I studied a lot in business school as an international business like scholar but it is valuable it's a little dated at this point but there is some interesting information you can kind of like glean from this. Few other kind of critiques that come about. There are so many critiques, like you can really dive deep into the critiques if you like wanted to. Some other critiques are things like, for example, this theory is at the national level, but in reality, differences between culture exist in like the regional level. I mean, yeah. easily with the United yeah. States, you can look at like people in the South versus people in the West coast, East coast. Like there's a, there are a lot of like kind of micro differences. So like, it doesn't really account for, for those regional differences. So that's a critique. Additionally, as you mentioned, this doesn't account for differences between like individual personalities. Yeah. So this is a quote, national scores should never be interpreted as deterministic for individuals. For example, a Japanese person can be very comfortable in changing situations, whereas on average, Japanese people have high uncertainty avoidance. There are still exceptions to the rule. No, so, uh, no, I Japanese IBM employees. No, I'm sorry, I'm still <laughs> upset. I'm not recovered from that piece of information, and I'm never going to recover from I it. I know. I totally know what you mean. You know, the funny thing is, one of my professors in business school was a former IBM employee and he's a Japanese man. So, you know, but okay. I digress. But yeah, no, that's entirely a good point. A, even if the surveys were given to different types of people, yes, everyone's an individual mm -hmm. has different. Mm -hmm. We are not all averages. Exactly. Another one, which I think this can be contested, but it was uh, talking about economic factors. So it said that um, on average, individualism, for example, increases with wealth. So apparently there are like studies that show that 
individualism is more so related to wealth than cultural difference. So if you look at like countries that score high in individualism, a lot of those countries are wealthy countries. But like, I kind of question this because Japan is a wealthy country and it doesn't score, you know, as high as say the United States. But it's scored pretty high. It's scored pretty high. And I do think about this. If you think about Japan compared to the United States, it is more collectivist. But in reality, like, there are a lot of people like just this is just empirical there are a lot of people in japan who are very much so individuals like unique people like self-expression like do you kind of know like do you kind of see what i'm talking about like you you think harajuku you think yeah i was thinking you know i think that kind that kind of thing is valued or at least like it's, it's it's a certain part of japanese culture I, yeah, that makes sense. I was also going to say that the wealth thing makes sense to me because I think uh, one of the things with collectivism, right, is that you kind of, you make a family union and you take mm-hmm. care of your family. Well, that's mm-hmm. really important. Those social ties are extremely important when you don't have a lot of wealth. You need mm-hmm. those people to look out for you and take care of you. But if you have more wealth, you know, you can pay someone to do this thing for mm-hmm. you or, you know, you, you feel more confident in going out on your own. So mm-hmm. it makes sense that wealth and individualism go hand in hand possibly i think there's a connection another critique is at the organizational level so the argument is that like there are different cultures between different organizations even within the same country so if you were to use hofstede to to help you you would need to understand the organizational cultural differences as well as the national cultural differences in order to like internationally manage organizations so i think that's that's definitely a good point as well as you can get even you get even more granular than that and get to the occupational level managerial differences like the position of manager that differs between cultures so like you need to kind of keep a close eye on something like that like what is valued in a manager in like let's say egypt Mm -hmm. may not be managered valued <laughs> sorry, may not be managered value may okay, not sorry. be managers sorry it's kind of late in america anyways it might not be valued in a manager in japan so yeah. that's something to keep in mind and then also as we kind of touched upon before in terms of like the gender level differences between men and women's culture in each society are not really accurately represented within Hofstede's theory yeah. because most of the people who responded were men. Yes. Yeah. I haven't recovered. I've not recovered from the I'm like I'm like angry. And I, I know. I'm like angry I know. about it. I feel like people don't <laughs> it's not as widespread as it should be widespread knowledge that this theory is based off IBM employees only. Yes, I think it's good that we said that just like we're doing this podcast so that people can know that because at the beginning I was like, oh, this is fun and cool and interesting. Haha, cultural differences. Oh my mm-hmm. God. And then once you dropped the IBM bomb, I was like, this is this is useless. No, I don't think it's useless. I just it's think not, yeah. it is it's not useless. It's a jumping off point. It's jumping off points. And I think I stick to, again, just I don't think that you can... You can't use this to describe a whole country. I think this is just, I think this is useful for businesses and nobody else. That's where I stand Uh, presently. Probably why I studied it so heavily in business school. Yeah. 
So, oh my god, this is, but this makes sense, you know, I feel like there's all kinds of, like, foundational theories, and when we break down to it, A, they probably just, like, used white men as the examples, or they did this, this, and this weird thing. This is just an example of why diversity is important in all aspects Mm -hmm. of everything, because the world is made up of individuals. (sighs) Yes. Exactly. And also, I love your passion. Backs up my point that I don't actually think this. I'm going to insult you. Cultural studies are stupid and they don't mean anything. No, no. It just means that you need to be careful with how you do it and also think about how this can be used, what context mm-hmm. you should use this, and mm-hmm. what context you should not use this in. You need to level set. You need to like qualify and quantify like your data. You need to realize that you are trying to measure something that is somewhat immeasurable. There's a lot that needs to be taken into consideration. This isn't math. This isn't science. You can't like make a hard claim. It's it's subjective, you know? So I, I totally understand where you're coming from. I don't know if you clicked upon the link that I put in the doc. Yeah. I've been um, on the website. I, it, it lost its, but, it's lost its fun now. My question, my final question was just to you that, you know, what you think of each score that like I'd shared with you and do you agree, disagree and why we can look up some like random countries if you want, but I feel like I'm kind of getting your general impression. You are. All right. Let's look up Canada. Let me just, I'm going to react to Canada's scores. No, I'm not. Canada's... You want to compare Canada to a different country? Canada... All right, let me not. I don't want to do Canada. Canada's. I don't. I don't. I don't have that much. I just know that Canada's nice. Okay, I've offended all the Canadians. <laughs> Let's compare. Mm-hmm. Do Let's do United Kingdom and United States. <laughs> no, it's not. We can do the United Kingdom. Okay, so the United Kingdom, and what should I compare it to? Let's compare it to Korea. All right, let's do that. I have some ideas. Okay, South Korea. Ooh, ooh la la. Oh, my God. What the fuck, Korea? Sorry, that was, I love Korea. That was not meant negatively. Did you know what the fuck Korea's long-term orientation is? I saw that. It's a hundred. It's a hundred. They are the scale. Yep. No, you can score above a hundred. Well, Isn't that cra- that's uh, uh, supposedly, okay. but that is crazy. That's crazy. And they score so high on uncertainty avoidance. The United Kingdom scores so high on individual individualism. Actually, More I think than- that's higher than the United States. I'm Let's, gonna plug, I'm gonna plug U.S. into this too. We can do three things, right? Yeah, no, I think we can do three. Oh, it's about the same as the U.S. Oh, Actually, the U.S. is slightly higher. You okay, let's, I'm just kidding. <laughs> let's go through these. Okay, I'm going to take yeah. US out. I'm going to do South Korea and the UK. So okay. power distance is you like respect your boss, right? <laughs> it's, the di- it's the distance between you and your boss. So like think about it this way, like the power structure, it's a, high, it's a steeper climb between you and your boss versus if the number were lower, it would be more flat structure. So like in Nordic countries, you are more equal to your boss. But like in countries that are more power distant, you and your boss are more unequal. Okay, so Korea gets a 60 on that, meaning they're Mm. fairly high, bit of a difference. Uh, UK gets 35. That makes sense. Uh, US is 40, just as I put here in case we forgot. So US and UK are about the same. It fits with my stereotype, so I guess that is good. 
South um, Korea score so low in individualism. Oh, wait. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. So they're more collectivist. Yeah, they're an 18. So low. It makes sense when you consider things like not only like multi-generational families, but also are you familiar with like the Chabol? Chabol? I'm not sure how to pronounce it. No, I'm not. Korean business conglomerate. The idea is that like a business not only so something like for example i'm trying to think of korean business so like lg lg is a korean Korean business i didn't know that yeah yeah it is so lg is korean the idea is not only would lg be you know cellular or whatever they would own the bank that funds them the raw materials a supplier that like provides them with what they need like they own the entire like network that contributes to their ultimate like final product and then also within kind of like competitive market they have relationships i've been out of business school for like a few years so i can't like accurately i i I need to like google this to like maybe i should do a future episode on the table because it's totally interesting because also it mirrors the japanese what's the japanese term for table because there's also a japanese mirroring business concept but like it's kind of been dissolved I'm not sure if it's been dissolved. In so it's Korea, basically they just own everything that they need so that they don't have to like pay other people to do it kind of thing. So it says here, the Chebol is a large industrial conglomerate that is run and controlled by an owner or family in South Korea. A Chebol often consists of many diversified affiliates controlled by an owner whose power over the group often exceeds legal authority. <laughs> What's the Japanese? Oh, Kai. I don't Kai. Kai. Well, I feel embarrassed that I don't remember this. I'll, I will. I will figure it out. Okay. All right. Um, Should I go to the next one? I'm yes. While I'm googling this. All right. Masculinity. Korea is a 39, and uh, UK is 66. US is 62. That, meaning that Korea is more people oriented and there's less gender, sex, role stuff. The Japanese version of the chebol is zaibatsu, just so you know. Okay. Um, zaibatsu. But interesting to me that Korea is more, according to the scale, more people oriented than, you know. <laughs> I can't believe Japan's a 95 masculine. But you know, it's it's because it's the IBM employees. That's just that is a pure example to me that they just talked to Japanese IBM employees, because that makes way more sense. Well, like, I mean, granted, this is just empirical, but like I lived in rural Japan and I had many coworkers who, you know. I'm a teacher and I'm going to teach in this school district for the rest of my life. And like, this is chill. They weren't climbing the ladder, like yeah. trying to achieve more yeah. money and like, you know. This is IBM employees in the 1980s. Okay, anyway, to see avoidance, Korea mm-hmm. gets an 85. That's kind of what I expected uh, in a similar vein to Japan. And mm-hmm. UK is 35 and the US is 46. So that mm-hmm. is something that's different, which could be different between mm-hmm. UK and US. Because just as a reminder, just because we all speak the same language doesn't mean we're the same term. I'd be curious to know what the most willing to take a risk country is. I'd be curious. I feel like it was Singapore. 
Yeah, you're probably right. <laughs> That's so interesting. I want to go to Singapore. Let's go to Singapore. Long-term orientation. Shit, what did that mean? How every society has to maintain some links with its own past while dealing with the challenges, the challenges of the present and future. So it's like about maintaining tr- tradition versus being more like adaptive. So it says- And also know. like being more oriented towards long-term gains versus- like short-term gains. So at 100, South Korea scores as one of the most pragmatic, long-term oriented societies. People Mm. live their lives guided by virtues and practical good examples. So does going higher mean that you actually stick to? You're more long-term oriented versus short-term oriented, which I wish I could bring up my actual presentation from business school because I feel like they touched upon this. Okay. Anyway, that's interesting. They're mm-hmm. 100, Japan's 88, uh, US is 26, and UK is a solid 51 in the middle there, middle of the road. Mm-hmm. Indulgence. Korea is a 29, <laughs> fairly low. And uh, UK and US are neck and neck. 69 for UK, 68 for US. <laughs> huh. We're uh, fairly indulgent. I could see that. Yeah, this is interesting. I, I want to know that. if. I want to, like, can I click on one of these? So if you. Things scroll... and find the, the highest one. I know. I want to know the highest one. Let's see. Okay, so Just which Googling. dimension would you like to know the highest? Most In- individualism. Most individualistic country. I wonder if it's U.S. is ninety-one. So I'm curious if there's anything more than us. I probably just Google it. I'm googling it right now. The highest-ranked countries for individualism ratio. All right. Let's see. According to this article, read it to me. So, Highest ranked countries for individualism ratio are the number one is the United States. What? That does not Individual Woo! IBM employees. <laughs> All right. Lowest ranked countries for individualism are actually all in Central slash South America. So it's like Guatemala, Ecuador, Panama, Venezuela, Colombia. That's interesting. There might be. be dated information. Okay. Um, okay. What about the others? Highest ranked countries for power distance. Number one country for power distance is Malaysia. Intriguing. Interesting. Lowest ranked countries for power distance are Austria, Israel, Denmark, New Zealand, and Ireland. Hmm. Masculinity. Lowest ranked countries for masculinity. So Sweden, feminine. Netherlands, Denmark, Co- Costa Rica. Yeah, those are all countries that like Costa kind of Rica. Were- I know Costa, Costa Rica's a little bit of a, a wild card there. What about... Okay, so highest ranked countries for uncertainty avoidance, so most cautious, are Greece, Portugal, Guatemala, Uruguay, and Belgium. I would not expect this. Didn't Greece, like, fall into an economic crisis? <laughs> That's what I was going to say. I was going to say they, like, went bankrupt. Yeah, they had an economic yeah. crisis. Um, don't know if that's relevant, but... It's that's information that we have. Lowest ranked, so meaning like the most risk taking countries, as you said, Singapore, number one, Jamaica, Denmark, mm. Sweden, Hong Kong. Hong Kong. Okay, so highest ranked countries for long term orientation. These are all Asian Korea. countries. Korea. Because China, Hong Kong, Taiwan, Japan, South Korea. Get, um, look up indulgence. I want to know who the most indulgent countries are. It says Australia, 
Canada, the United States, Argentina, and Chile. That was very interesting. I went through an emotional roller coaster. I was interested, and then my whole world was rocked, and I would just tell anybody that has encountered the Hofstetter. I already forgot. Hofstad. Hofstad. Hofstetter. I don't know where the Mm -hmm. book that came from. Hofstetter. I will text you the name. Anyway, anyone who has encountered this theory before, please remember that it was conducted on IBM employees in the 1980s, and that is a very important piece of information to remember, and mm-hmm. we can glean maybe something from this, but not it's not an end-all. Mm-hmm. No, 100%. Like, let's keep this in perspective. It's a jumping-off point. It is a foundational work. But I would encourage anyone who listens to this podcast to also read critiques of the theory and to read literature and articles that have been published in more recent history. Because obviously at this point, this information is dated. Also, it's a very select data pool. Ideally, would want something more diverse. Yeah, I think that's all I have to say on the matter. And uh, thanks for joining us through this journey. Thank you all for listening. I hope you enjoyed. I know it was quite different than, you know, some of our topics in the past, but hopefully you found it interesting. Yes, it was very different than the three topics we've had before. We've already set a theme with the three topics of missing airplane, Starbucks, old people, and now culture. I feel like that's all just a hodgepodge. And then next week, who knows what we're going to discuss. Could be puppies. Could be... The Bachelor. We already did that. Could be bananas. I don't know. I'm just naming stuff that's in my room now. There's not a bachelor in my room. There's not a bachelor in your room? That's such no. a bummer. No, my... What... Are you wish a bachelor? There was a bachelor. I wish there was a bachelor in my room. Are you a bachelor if you're in a relationship but unmarried? Is that how that works? Um, I'm not sure. <laughs> we'll have to Google that. Okay, that's all right, everybody. Homework for today. Uh, get off this podcast and Google if you're a bachelor, if you're in a relationship, but unmarried. And with that, this has been TMI. That's my interest with Megan and Rebecca. Bye. Thank you for listening.